either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, in 20-some-odd years of reviewing movies, this is the busiest week for new releases we have ever seen. It is nuts. It is nuts. I think we've got 16. Bananas! <laughs> so we're going to try to cover them all and roll through them pretty quickly. Glad you're here. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. And we're going to start with one that's streaming on HBO Max. An immigrant worker at a pickle factory is accidentally preserved for 100 years and wakes up in modern-day Brooklyn. An American pickle. It's been 100 years. The pickle brine preserved him perfectly. You're too old to do that. The world has changed. Everyone I know is gone. We were able to track down a great grandson. Greenbaum. Greenbaum. <laughs> this is nuts. Walk past the cafe that you don't need when you live to. The opponents, where are they? They passed away. It was a car crash. He will tell me everything of their deaths, how their bodies died, their faces as the life left. We will bond over our pain. Mm -hmm. This is Seth Rogen starring alongside Seth Rogen. <laughs> it's kind of a cute fish-out-of-water story. If you enjoy him as a performer, I mean, he's very much himself, and he does a great job actually playing off of himself. I think for me, the film was a little more sentimental than I expected, a little bit more about finding who you are with the help of family and faith, which is not exactly what I expected from a Seth Rogen film. Very much a spiritual journey. Now, Seth Rogen, even though he helped produce it with his partner, Evan Goldberg, they didn't write, they didn't direct, but it does feel very much like a spiritual journey with a little bit of a Forrest Gump vibe yeah. uh, to me about these characters being placed in situations that alter history and things like that. Maybe not on the grand scale of Forrest scum but but I, I did i thought seth rogan was very good the obviously as technology has improved the look of the same actor acting with himself has gotten so good yeah the comedy you know it's a little bit it's very silly it's a very silly film and not all of the jokes really land but it was enjoyable yeah it was enjoyable it's an american pickle and again it's on hbo max Next up, a documentary exclusively on showtime all about the most successful female rock band of all time it's called the go-go's the greatest all-girl group of all time, the Go-Go's. The Go-Go's. We are the first all-girl band that wrote their own material and played their own instruments to be really successful. In the course of a year, we had gone from playing dive bars to Madison Square Garden. Girls are up to us and say, oh, you know, we started a band because of you, and uh, that's probably the best feeling in the world. Who are not yet in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, George. That is crazy. That is the thing that came out of this and just hits you in the face. There are so many artists out there that you just don't stop and think about. Oh, sure, they're in the Hall of Fame. No, they're not. Yeah. Why? I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted yeah, by that. Yeah, it's nuts. But beyond that, it is such a fascinating documentary. I love, I lo you know, we do. We love the Go-Go's. We are huge fans. It's fun for me to watch them back from their very punk, punk roots yeah, in L.A. Yeah. That was super fun. Enjoyed that. I really liked the the candor of, of everybody involved when they talk about sort of how the whole band evolved. And the music is great. Yeah, it's directed by Allison Elwood, who also did the History of the Eagles. And that's really the reason, from what I understand, why the band members decided to do a documentary because they really liked how she treated the Eagles and all their infighting and things like that. So when you have a documentary that is approved by the band, obviously it's not going to go in too much to salacious details, but you're right. There, there there's It does a bit, though. But there's candor right. about how they treated each other yeah. and, and how they look back 
on it now and mm-hmm. things that they're sorry about and looking forward. And you do get one brand new song. That's right. Yeah, so uh, definitely check it out for Go-Go's fans, of course, and just for 80s music fans. It's yep. fun. The Go-Go's now in Showtime. Next up, a tax collector working for a local crime lord finds his family's safety compromised when the rival of his boss shows up in L.A. and upends the business. It's called the tax collector. God allows me to walk through the darkness and come back into the light. What did you see, me? I heard that you were this big, bad gangster. You're taxing 43 different street gays. That's thousands of dudes in the most violent subculture in Los Angeles. The count's short. Who are you? In the future, and you the past. Took my kids, man. I'm riding with you till the wheels fall off. You're bad. You ain't that bad, all right? Open your mouth. Okay. He'll splatter your brains out. I don't want that. I do. I want that. This is the latest from writer-director David Ayer, and early on, it recalls End of Watch, and then um, this, his script for Training Day, in that these two, played by Shia LaBeouf and Bobby Soto, are going around making these stops and making these collections. And then it turns into this gang war. And by the end of it, it's very violent. And by the end of it, you just, you're just not sure what the point of it exactly. all is. Exactly. Yeah. There really doesn't seem to be a point other than just a lot of graphic violence. And, of course, the film has come under fire itself because... Shia LaBeouf's character is what they're saying is a brown face, right? That he's playing a Mexican-American and he's clearly not. And he's he's sort of taking on these exaggerated characteristics. Now, David Ayers is a white man who grew up in this environment. And so he was saying he's saying that that's not what he intended this character to be. But it still feels it like an com- ugly caricature. Yeah, it doesn't come through in the movie. It really doesn't. And uh, LaBeouf is, of course, characteristically intense. Yeah. And so it comes off, at best, as intense appropriation. But you may have heard that he got, LaBeouf got this, his character's name is Creeper. And he got this full chest tattoo, for real, that says Creeper. And it's just one of the things that, one of the questions that dogged this movie is that, wow, it, was it really worth that? Right. I mean, get a tattoo if you want it, but this it really seems like, well, what is the point here? Even though there are a few possibilities, for a while it seems like it could be maybe the robber's bookend of the cops in End of Watch, because those were compelling characters. Sure. But it, it never gets there. It just goes down in a hail of blood and gunfire, and uh, disappointed in the tax collector. Next, the story of a bohemian artist who travels from London to Italy with his estranged son to sell the house they inherited from his late wife, made in Italy. I don't hear from you for months. And then this sudden need to sell the Tuscan house by last Tuesday. You're on holiday. I'm actually here to sell an old family house. I love that house. You want to buy it? Why are you selling it? Jack's memories of the house are not so good. I heard about your mother, Jack. I'm sorry. We'll live by one of the two. I don't remember anything. You can't remember her, and I can't forget. This house deserves to have its history honored. Everyone lets everyone down at some point. How you come back from that, that's romance. This is the first feature for veteran actor James Darcy, who is writer and director of a story that's very familiar, also very comfortable, and it benefits a lot from having a real-life father and son at the helm. Yeah, it's a, it's a story about, you know, a father and son who are estranged, and they are estranged 
a bit over the death of the wife slash mother. And of course, it's being played by Liam Neeson and his real life son, Michael Richardson. And of course, they lost their wife slash mother, uh, Natasha Richardson, some years ago. So I think that that gives the film uh, an added poignancy. Yeah, and the the metaphor is obvious. They're working on the house, the villa, as they're working on their relationship. And then you get the the construction montages, and they go into town for meals, and they meet some ladies. And you know exactly where it's going, but it looks fantastic, picturesque, of course. When I say Italian and villa, you know it's going to look great. Right. And it does. Just very comfortable, very safe. Not really funny. It's amusing. And other than one really cartoonishly misplaced couple that stops by to look at the house... Um, who are just very overtly rich and, and portrayed as caricatures. Most of the humor, though, while not laugh-out-loud funny, is charming. So it's, it's safe and comfortable, and if that's what you're looking for, that's what you're going to get with Made in Italy. Next is the story of a magistrate working in a distant outpost, beginning to question his loyalty to the Empire, waiting for the barbarians. Count Jones are conducting operations to correct the situation that you've allowed to develop. What did they do to you? You want me to take you back to your family? The barbarians whom you are chasing. This is their land, they know every inch of it, you do not. Did you really say that there will be a great war against the Empire? Pain is truth. That is how you get it. You have no idea how tiresome your behavior is. You are an obscene torture! We have set procedures. We're ready to go. You've been treasonously consulting with the enemy. Get out! I want these people out of here! We will end these troubles. We will put down the enemy. That will be the end of it. This is the first film adaptation for a 40-year-old novel, and the script is actually adapted by the author of the novel, J.M. Coetzee. This is uh, from filmmaker Ciro Guerra, who did Birds of Passage and Embrace of the Serpent. He has such a, an eye for just visual glory. This really looks fantastic, and it benefits from the lead, the magistrate played by Mark Rylance, and his two adversaries, Johnny Depp, and Robert Pattinson in, in smaller roles, but they all are great. And, and yes, the landscape's incredible. The metaphor of colonialism and creeping fascism, very obvious. In right. fact, too obvious in some cases. But when this movie works in some of the, the quieter moments, it, it really works well. And again, it, it looks even from moving from wide vistas to, to intimate interior, almost still lifes. It looks great. It's set in a very ambiguous time and place, so it doesn't really get specific enough to really hit you in the gut like you're hoping that it would. But it does work in small doses and small spots, and it benefits from three great performances, Waiting for the Barbarians. Let's do a comedy next. Following the launch of her new novel, 30-something writer Kate is invited to speak at her alma mater by her former professor. After accepting the invitation, she finds herself deeply enmeshed in the lives of a group of college students. I used to go here. In Carbondale. Welcome back, right? David Kirkpatrick brought me down to do a reading. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Kate was in my very first class ever as a professor. How's your book doing? Not as good as I would have hoped. Hey. Oh, hi. I used to live here. Seriously? Hey. We're having a party. 
You should come. I used to dance in this room like 15 years ago. I was in kindergarten 15 years ago. Life is not like school, all right? It's all like possibility for you. Are you coming back? I like the way you open this in the written review, whereas if you've ever driven past your old campus apartment and you just kind of felt the need to knock on the door, yeah. what would happen? Yeah, of course. So we live in a big college town of Columbus, Ohio, so maybe that works more for us than, than other people. But yeah, you're intrigued by that, but then you think, oh, really? No, you keep walking. <laughs> well, this time she doesn't. And uh, the, the Kate, the main character, is played by Jillian Jacobs from the TV show Community. She's fantastic. She just does a fantastic job realizing the writer-director, uh, Chris Ray, realizing what she's trying to do with this, which is basically, it, it gets nutty, yes, it gets a little sitcom-y, but it's also very smart and charming in the way it, it just shows a series of indignities as you're accepting adulthood. Right. And the, the holes that are punctured in the illusion of aging while hip. <laughs> um, and so there are some funny scenarios, and even if they might be a little bit outlandish, I still had a real good time with I Used to Go Here, and especially with Jillian Jacobs' performance, and someone we love and his support. Jermaine! Jermaine Clement plays the uh, professor that invites her back. So uh, really a good recommendation for I Used to Go Here. Next is the story of an 84-year-old charming but delusional World War II veteran forming relationships with two elderly women going on a crusade to save them from the isolation of their retirement homes in East Hollywood. Senior Love Triangle. How did you two meet? There are many different kinds of love. No other love. Do you mind my being here? Love can warm my heart. I've had a very rich life, but I do think there are some things missing. Like what? Ever since you moved, you spent all of your time with her. He has a history of being violent, and he's delusional. I'm going to take care of you. You can't take care of yourself. That's true. I never thought about that. This is my biggest recommendation of all 16 films this week. I cannot tell you how much I love this movie. It felt like a minor miracle to me watching it. And it's interesting because I think the story itself, if it had been, you know, say 20-something, beautiful 20-something addicts in Hollywood, right. it's a film that would seem like a gritty indie drama with some touches of poignance. It's very similar to something like that, except it's these three 80-something people and it's so refreshing to see these characters being allowed to flesh themselves out and being taken seriously as full, fully-fledged characters. That's the main thing, because we see movie after movie treat people of this age for either comic relief mm -hmm. or just manipulative string-pulling. Yep. And here, they're, they're just characters with stories. And the, the most amazing thing is that this is a, based on a true story. It's based very closely on a gorgeous photo essay that uh, was done by the co-writer and that itself, I mean, I had to go through all of the photos after I saw the movie just to see how closely it resembled real life. It's just, it's a remarkable film. Yeah, and if you want to uh, find a link to the photo essay, you can find it in our review, our written review yep. at madwolf.com, but uh, really love Senior Love Triangle and it's from writer, co-writer and director Kelly Blatt, so well done. 
Next up, the story of an arrogant art critic hired to steal a rare painting from one of the most enigmatic painters of all time. He becomes consumed by his own greed and insecurity as the operation spins out of control. It's the burnt orange heresy. No critic has spoken to this guy in over 50 years. Jerome Debney. It's an honor, Mr. Debney. You could be running a major museum soon. And why would you do this for me? I'd value a Debney, James. What is this about? Redemption, embezzlement, and forgery. Kind of underhanded, don't you think? Most people are not what you'd expect. You know, don't you? They want truth. Mick Jagger. <laughs> Mick Jagger has a. It's actually one of his biggest roles in probably 20 years yeah. in the movies, outside of a couple of uncredited cameos. But yeah, he's got a, a smaller but important role here. This is an adaptation of a novel. Uh, writer Scott Smith does the adaptation, and the director is Giuseppe Capantondi. And it is interesting. It's all very seductive, and it's it's wealth and it's art. And this, the uh, art critic is played by uh, Klaus Bang. From, from the square, square, which oh is also, God. he was an art dealer. Yeah, but, God, we love the square. And uh, he's got a new fling, mysterious new fling, played by Elizabeth DeBecky. Hooray for tall girls. Yeah, she's almost 6'3". <laughs> uh, and Mick Jagger is not. And, <laughs> and then the painter that they're trying to find, this reclusive master, is played by Donald Sutherland. So uh, it's it really sucks you in. It sets the hook very well, I think. It, toward the end, it maybe loses it, its consistency, loses a little bit of its believability, but the final shot is great, and it really has a lot to say, not only about art, but about critiquing, yep. which uh, caught my eye, <laughs> and about making it and faking it and um, fraud and really the the delusion sometimes of what you're entitled to with uh, with your privilege. And so I, I found it worthwhile. It's the Burnt Orange Heresy. I don't think this one is streaming just yet, but it is popping up in theaters around the country, including in Columbus, Ohio, Studio 35. It's crazy. You can go to a theater and see a movie. You can. Got a foreign film next. A grieving widower moves to the country where a chance encounter rekindles memories from his past. Out stealing horses. This is another one based on a novel, a novel by Pierre Pedersen, and the writer-director here that adapts it is Hans Peter Moland. And he has done a lot of Norwegian films, uh, and just last year he did his first English-language film, which was an adaptation of his own f- film, and it starred Liam Neeson. Uh, it was called Cold Pursuit. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting that he goes from his first sort of Hollywood-type movie right back to a very Norwegian film, just enmeshed in the history of the country and the snow, and then also flashbacks to this beautiful, beautiful countryside. It is an absolutely stunning film to look at and to listen to. All of the technical aspects of this movie are amazing. And the story is really poignant. It's about, you know, the summer that everything changes. The performances are all quite, quite lovely. Stellan Skarsgård is in the lead, yeah. Yeah, and he plays, he's like the, he is the widower who is flashing back, and he does a great job. So it's, um, I think it's a little bit... A little bit hokey in that structure with the flashback that that doesn't always work in a film, but it's very much worth the effort. It's a beautiful movie. 
Let's go back to comedy. After her partner breaks up with her on her 39th birthday, Gabby tackles her fears of loneliness as well as preconceptions of what it means for a woman to be single. It's spinster. You're 29. Yeah. Why the lie? Eventually we'd have to tell one another the truth, right? By then we'd already be madly in love. <sighs> you can stay if you want. I gotta work in the morning. Finding love isn't magic, it's hard work. What if you do that hard work and still don't find someone? I want to offer you an opportunity. Spend a little more time with your niece. What do you like to do? I could teach you how to knit if you'd like that. You can choose any color. This is my new used dog, Trudy. Oh, Trudy. Make yourself at home. I don't want to talk about men. And not talk about getting older. Honestly, it's just living longer. Why is that something to complain about? Cheers, girl. So this is sort of a rom-com antidote is what this is. And uh, it works mainly because Chelsea Peretti, who stars as Gabby, does she's so comfortable in this character, who's pretty unlikable, to be honest with you. But <laughs> she's right. Yeah, she's cynical, but she's very, very funny. A lot of the situations feel a bit sitcom-esque, and the movie stumbles a little bit with that. It feels like too much just episodic, as opposed to like one sort of smooth narrative. But Peretti is great. Yeah, and you may know her from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Yeah. I think she's got a recurring role on that and some other shows. Also, I think she's married to Jordan Peele. She Peel. is indeed. So this is a really big lead role for her and the uh, writer Jennifer Dale and the director Andrea Dorfman. In a, yeah, I think that's a good way to describe it, an anti-rom-com? Yeah. Next is a documentary based on a video interview conducted by journalist Sylvia Bizio with writer Charles Bukowski in his house in San Pedro, California. It's called You Never Had It, An Evening with Bukowski. Uh, good writing can expose anything at any level. I'd say uh, 75% of what I write is good. And 45, 40% of what I write is excellent. 10% of what I write is immortal. And 25% of what I write is crap. Does that add up right? In your time, if you're too well accepted, you're not doing a good job. You should always be a little bit ahead of your time. Mm -hmm. When your critics agree with you, when your readers agree with you, you're not quite there. I think any creator should be at least 100 years ahead. Well, I think they had us at Bukowski. Yes, they did. For my money, Charles Bukowski is the greatest American poet. And if that's how you feel, you're going to enjoy this film. It's short. It's shot in 1981. Less it was than an never hour. aired. Yeah. Yeah, less than an hour. Uh, it was never aired. So it's all stuff you haven't seen before. But she doesn't uncover very much. She doesn't learn a lot of new things, probably because just like him, she sits there and drinks wine all night. <laughs> but if you've ever just wanted to sit in his living room and watch while right. people drink too much wine and smoke too many cigarettes and start saying, stupid things. That's the thing. For true fans, it is just an ideal situation and we loved it. Yeah, the uh, the journalist is who you're talking about, but actually the, the film was put together by Matteo Bogart. But if you're a fan, sort of goes back to the Go-Go's thing. If, if you're a fan, you cannot miss it. Yes. You never had it. Alright, if you're saying what about the horror movies? We hear you. How about this? Amy thinks she's dying tomorrow and it's contagious. She dies tomorrow. There is no tomorrow for me. All right, listen, Amy, I'm really freaking out right now. I feel like you put this idea of dying in my head. Can, can you just call me back? She could be right. What? Something really bad is going to happen. I'm ready, I'm ready. She did this, did this. This. I'm not ready. This is 
from writer-director Amy Simetz, and it's a trippy, weird, sort of apocalyptic film. It's very deliberately paced and dreamlike and really enthralling. And the it's got this great supporting term from Jane Adams, who I always love. And she brings kind of this batty sensibility to the whole thing. But as it just unrolls in this this idea that you're going to die tomorrow is a contagious you can you spread it to sort other of like people. It follows. It exactly. Remind, the premise reminded me of it follows, but the premise hooked me right away. Oh yeah. I mean it's it's just fascinating the way Simon sort of looks at well how a different person is going to deal with the idea that they're going to be dead tomorrow, and then how the next person is going to deal with it. It's just a really very interesting film. Very well put together. I enjoyed it a lot. Let's keep on the horror train with a murderer finding himself on trial in hell, caught between a bitter prosecutor and an inexperienced defense attorney. Limbo. Can someone tell me what the hell is going on? You are dead. So where am I now, then? Limbo. It's a neutral place between heaven and hell. There is no way that this low life's getting into heaven whilst I'm stuck here. You smell that? That's the smell of victory. Limbo. What is that? Closer to hell. It's more like Jersey. This is from writer-director Mark Young, who has a way with making the most of what is clearly a very small budget. He's done it a number of times uh, recently with Farrell, which was, a, which was a pretty good Kevin in the Woods story, and it co-starred Lou Temple, who you, you'll know his face. Well, he's the guy that drives the truck in Unstoppable. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's got yeah. that face. He's got that face. So you know his face, and he's the, he's the, uh, the soul that they're determining where he goes. And James Purifoy shows up as Satan. Jump to conclusions. Yes, jump to conclusions from Office Space. I'm sorry, that's what we call him. His name is Richard Real. Yeah, I mean, there are just so many faces that pop in and out of this. Basically, just a single decrepit-looking uh, office where they're determining the fate of this man's soul. I don't think the circular logic is quite as clever as Young thinks it is, but it's a it's a pretty fun, campy film. Yeah, and that's Limbo. And one more horror film this week. It's a new take on the Latin American ghost story of the weeping woman. This is La Llorona. And that's right, it's La Llorona, not the curse of La Llorona. That's correct, and it's also not my Sharona. It's a whole (laughs) other thing. And it's really fascinating. So it takes a look at this ghost story of the weeping woman, and it sets it inside the house of a convicted war criminal, and just as his conviction is being overturned. So the house is completely surrounded by protesters, and also you've got the sense of not being able to leave your own house. So it's sort of a lockdown horror without being outright a lockdown horror. It's really a very effective way to use this old ghost story to really dig into this concept of war criminal and and come up and uh, it's spooky. It doesn't rely on jump scares. It's very atmospheric. A great watch. It's on Shutter right now. La Llorona.
And we've got two this week that we actually didn't get around to seeing, but we left them in the trusty hands of a couple of our other writers at MadWolf.com. The first one tells the story of capitalism and opportunism run amok, complete with gangsters, strippers, and live bears serving beer on a hockey rink in Moscow. It's called Red Penguins. Top story. Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev has been removed from power, and there are tanks in the streets of Moscow. This was a vast country with a history of hockey. We couldn't believe that one of the greatest teams was on the verge of extinction. Now an American team has a stake in Russian hockey, rescuing an entire sport from thin ice. It's complete chaos. Trust me, I'll make you a good capitalist. <laughs> well, as you know, there's no rules in Russia. That's our slogan. This is the story of the NHL's Pittsburgh Penguins, the owners there buying a stake in a Russian hockey team and all that comes with. And uh, our writer Brandon Thomas wrote the uh, written review, and he loved it. And last but not least, a powerful and uplifting story of music, love, and legacies set in the American South, River City Drumbeat. Our culture is going to be our savior. If we tap back into their culture, you'll find out that's where the problem is at. This is one that Kat McAlpine reviewed for us, and you can check that review out on MadWolf.com. She loved it. It is one, it's just an uplifting and inspirational story about community, about passing your heritage down to the next generation, and there's also some great music. Is that it? Is that all we got? (laughs) (laughs) You want options? You got options. Let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Okay, we're back in the lobby checking in with Daniel Baldwin, the schlocketeer, for all the latest news. What are you hearing? What happened this week? The biggest things come, at least in terms of single movies, come from Disney. Um, They have decided to sell their star-studded Fox thriller, The Woman in the Window, to Netflix. It's expected to premiere sometime on the service this fall, but they don't have an exact date yet. And then, of course, you have the Mulan business. Uh, they had pulled it from its August release date and hadn't dated it again. Everyone was wondering if they would push it back later in the fall or early next year. But no, they are going to premiere it on Disney+, Plus, but as a premium VOD feature. So even if you have a membership, you still have to pay a whopping $30 to rent it. Right. But if you do that, as long as you keep your membership, you have permanent access to the film. Yeah, so, so there's... That's the, there's a little wrinkle yeah, there, yeah. but well, with a with a two hundred million dollar budget, I guess that was probably expected, huh? Probably, <laughs> and it's it's still a steal for families. Although I'm sure a couple people who just wanted to watch it on their own might be balking at that price a little bit. Well, then just today we found out about the uh, the antitrust decision that's going to make waves for um, theater ownership. Yes, uh, I guess the Justice Department began the process back in the fall of rolling back the old. Paramount decision that barred studios from owning their own theater chain anymore. I only had a chance to read over it a little bit. It looks like they're going to slowly roll back all the different restrictions of the next two years, but once that's done, there's nothing to prevent, you know, Disney from buying AMC or Universal from buying Regal and then just 
running their own business again, which I guess is beneficial for the studios, but that could be a real problem for indie movies in the long run, trying to squeeze their way into the studio and theater chains. Exactly right. Well, there's no doubt, especially now, and, and even when we come out of this, it is a whole different business model now. Yeah. All right, Daniel Baldwin, you can catch up with him uh, at The Schlocketeer. We appreciate it, as always. Thank you. All right, thanks for having me. All right, we're going to rest up and get back at it next week. What are we looking at? What's on the schedule? We have Spree, Bay of Silence, Boys State, Cream, Sputnik, and the one I'm really looking forward to, the one and only Ivan. And probably 10 or 12 more will pop up <laughs> between now and then if, uh, if history serves. And until then, let us know about what you liked out of the crop this week. whole lot to choose from, so always keep the conversation going. Easy to do that when you find us on Twitter. We're at MadWolf. Also on Facebook and Instagram, it's Mad Wolf Columbus and the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club, all there for you at madwolf.com. So appreciate you stopping by as always. And if you would, just do us a favor and subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate it. Yes, we would. Until next week, thanks again to Daniel Baldwin, and we will talk soon. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>